So let's begin with a word of prayer. God, we've said thanks for the food that we've eaten tonight. You're good to provide for us uh, our physical sustenance, and we want God to be thankful even in advance for the way that you give us the privilege of being fed spiritually with spiritual uh, insight and truth into the things that we could only know if you revealed them to us. Uh, Your word is for us, a lamp to our feet, a light for our path. Without you revealing yourself to us, we would be groping uh, really and just guessing and filled with speculation about who you are. And while the Bible doesn't give us everything we might want to know or that our curiosity would uh, um, provoke us to to ask, we certainly have far more than we could ever process uh, in any short period of time. In most of our Christian lives, not enough time to really plumb the depths of the things that you've told us about yourself. Some are hard to understand. Uh, Some have uh, such nuanced arguments and and insights and and details that we need uh, many years to process how they all fit together in a composite that paints the picture of who you are, how you function. That's so important, God, because we don't want to be guessing as to what we see or experience or feel and uh, guess as to whether or not this is uh, your work or just the reaction of our emotions and feelings. We want to be confident about who you are, what you do, how you interface with us as Christians. And so, God, give us that great insight that is so necessary to our just being uh, equipped and matured in the Christian life. God, and for those that haven't been to a study like this before, I know many have in other settings, but I pray there be a great thirst that's even uh, generated in, in, a, in an increased and exponential way because we uh, introduced this topic tonight. Bring these folks back with an eager and teachable heart that we might dive into these truths and have them not only inform our minds but really change our lives. So thanks so much, God, for a new semester. Thanks for your loving care for us over the summer and taking care of us and, and dealing with us, though we've had, I'm sure, in this room many ups and downs and plenty of pain and suffering. We're grateful for being here in this air-conditioned room with a chance for us to say, uh, you know, wait on all the circumstances of our weekly life just to think thoughts that Christians have been thinking for centuries, uh, looking at your word as it relates to what it says about your spirit. So, God, we entrust ourselves to you, our minds to you. Give us a great study tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Compass Night, as I just said, these aren't homilies or sermons. This isn't uh, some oratory. This is uh, a systematic study. And here's where we've been. I should say, here's how we break down, and you don't need to take notes on any of this. Uh, We do it at the beginning of every semester just to remind you the major categories that anybody, if they want to understand reality, uh, you're going to naturally come to some buckets that we're going to go into the Bible to try and fill. And one is uh, the book itself that claims to be God's Word. We need to study that in depth to make sure we understand the claims of the Bible and the external as well as internal proofs in the text to give us a sense of authority. We call that study bibliology. Then, of course, the first thing we want to understand is the triune God. When you talk about theology, uh, the word can encompass the whole of every division of theology so that when we talk about God, the study of the triune God, God the Father uh, in particular, uh, you need to designate that and distinguish that between the overall study of theology and what we call here the study of God. So therefore, the word proper is added to the end of that. So the study of God is what we call theology proper. The person and work of Christ that I hope is fresh in your mind from our recent study uh, not too long ago, the person and work of Christ we call, call Christology, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which we're going to tackle this semester, pneumatology, more on that, a lot more on that in a minute, creation, The creation, the nature, and the fall of mankind, uh, that's usually put under two headings, anthropology and uh, homartiology, and we are going to cover those together. Uh, Redemption, God's work and plan of redemption and salvation, we call soteriology. All of these are based on Greek words, as we've noted throughout the semesters. The study of the church, which is also recent. I think we did that last, did we not? Ecclesiology. Study of angels and demons, that one was not too long ago. Angelology and the study of end times, Uh, we're looking at the end, eschaton in Greek, that's called eschatology. Now we studied that one first because, I don't know, we just decided to start at the end, 2007. We did theology proper in 2008. We did bibliology in 2009. Christology in 2010, wow, that seemed a lot more recent. Angelology in 2011. Ecclesiology last year and this year. Pneumatology. So we have two more years to go. Uh, to break this down in the nine-year study that I planned, and then we'll start all over again. Maybe we'll actually do them in order. 
the logical order. So that might be smart. But there's where we're at. So two more years after this year, if Christ does not come back, our plan will be to finish this. And then uh, hopefully every time we do this, I don't know how many times we can get through this uh, in my life, but um, it'll get better and better. But if you want to go backwards and catch up because you don't want to wait nine years uh, to study eschatology again, then you might want to, uh, it'll actually be 11 years, right? Uh, you might want to go online. All of these lectures are online. They're usually anywhere from 10 to 13 weeks, about 90 minutes apiece, and uh, all of that is on focalpointministries.org, which is long. So recently on the radio and stuff, we've been talking about just pastormike.com. That's memorable, but you've got a pen. doesn't matter. Uh, but if you're ever stuck, is it focalpoint.com, which takes you to some, I don't know, optics maker or something. I don't know what it is. Just go to pastormike.com. We've got links to all the pertinent sites. All right, our study of pneumatology, you've got a worksheet, I hope. If not, you should scramble for one right now. We have a few left up here in the basket, but we want to talk about the word pneumatology. The components of the word, pneumato uh, and ology, this is the breakdown of all of these titles. They're broken in half. Ology comes from the Greek word logos, not logos, logos. Those are long O's in the Greek language. We have two different vowels for O in Greek, the long and the short. These are long, logos. Logos, or short O's, omicrons, not omegas. That that appears 339 times in the New Testament and often is translated word, like in John 1.1, in the beginning was the logos, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. Uh, But of course, it doesn't just mean that theoretically, it means it practically, and oftentimes it refers to a group of words like a speech or a corpus of teaching from an individual person or a corpus of teaching in a subject. And so we derive the idea of study every time we tack ology on the end, just like when you were in high school and college, uh, you had all the courses like biology, bios, life, ology, the study of life. Pneumatology. We get that from the Greek New Testament, but ruach, ruach is the Hebrew word, and it means almost an, an identical etymology in terms of, its, uh, of what it means to the Greek word pneuma. So ruach and pneuma are the Old Testament word and the New Testament word. And, and let's just deal with the New Testament. Well, I guess I got occurrences of both. And there's a typo. In the Old Testament, Ruach is 375 times. No idea why I said 378. That would be interesting. 378 in the Old Testament, Numa, 379. But it's 375 and 379. What does the word mean? If you looked it up outside of the Bible, uh, not that it doesn't mean spirit, but it means wind in its most basic meaning. If you said in the Old Testament, ruach, and sometimes it's translated that way, or in the New Testament, pneuma, in the marketplace in, 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 you know, in, in Asia Minor, and you use the word pneuma, uh, it, means, it means wind. As a matter of fact, in a verbal form, that's the noun form, the verbal form, nuo, meant to blow, to, to blow. You would talk about the, the winds blowing, the Santa Ana winds blowing, or you'd, they wouldn't, but we do. Or you would talk about someone blowing air out of their mouth, that's the word. The air itself or the wind itself is is pneuma. Breath also, it can be translated depending on the context. Same thing. It can be the wind in the meteorology of weather. It can be breath coming out of your mouth. Now, the imagery of that leads us to the idea of spirit. And again, you're trying to capture in definition something that we can't see, but we see the effects of, and even that, you start to see why you'd want to use the word ruach or pneuma, the word wind or breath. You don't see it. You feel the effects of it. Depending on what you ate for dinner, you smell the effects of it. You know wind uh, because of what it does to things, but you don't see it. Spirit, that word used 375 times in the Old Testament and 379 times in the New Testament, often is referring to, the majority of times, to either the spirit of God or the spirit of man, mostly the spirit of God, often the spirit of man, the invisible part of a human being that makes him human. And even in animals, it's spoken of in terms of the ruach of animals, that they have a immaterial part, that once they die, uh, you have all the biological components, you just don't have the spiritual component. And the Bible's clear in differentiating between animal spirit and human spirit. But the point is there's something that animates. There's something that is alive, life, spirit, breath, wind. That's the idea. And of course, the word pneumatology, we're talking about God's spirit, not our spirit. We'll talk about our spirit when we deal with anthropology. But what we're dealing with now for the next whatever many weeks is the idea of the study of 
the Holy Spirit of God. Now, let's think through the study as we're going to try to tackle it this semester. Number two, what we're going to cover, three things. We're going to talk about the nature of the Holy Spirit, which is debated. When they walk around in your neighborhood and they knock on your door and they say, hi, we're from Kingdom Hall, you know, we're going to talk to you about the end of the world or whatever. Here's our interesting magazine. You know, everybody's got beliefs about the Holy Spirit and, and we need to deal with the nature of the Holy Spirit to make sure we don't, uh, we don't err on this for many reasons we'll talk about. But the idea is, you know, the average cultist doesn't understand the biblical data on who the Spirit is. A lot of Christians don't take time to carefully think it through. So we're going we're to talk about the nature of, of the Spirit, a lot of that tonight. We'll talk a lot about what the Spirit does, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the service of the Holy Spirit. What's he doing? What's his, what's his role? That, I think, is probably the biggest misunderstanding within Christian circles, evangelical circles, orthodox circles. We'll talk about that quite a bit. And lastly, how we interface with the Holy Spirit. And everyone wants to know about that, and we should want to know about that, because Jesus went back to the Father, sat down at the right hand of the Father. The Father is in heaven, our Father who art in heaven. Uh, Our contact, our interface with God, our Creator, is through our interface with the Holy Spirit. So it's important that we understand that. Talk about being filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, baptized with the Spirit. What do all those things mean? We'll try to untangle all of that biblically and think very carefully about it. Why it's so important right now for us to study these things? Well, as you can imagine, in something that seems so ethereal, uh, like Spirit, there's a lot of unbiblical teaching, not only with the cultist at your door, but there's a lot of unbiblical teaching within the evangelical church. And so we're going to try to be real careful about thinking this through, not only against the big paradigm outside of the church of of Jesus Christ, the Orthodox Evangelical Church, but also within our doors. What do people in this building think about the Holy Spirit, and can we hone that and sharpen that and make that real clear? A lot of dangerous practices. And I've got to tell you, you know, our friend John MacArthur up the road, he's going to do his big conference in a month, uh, middle of October, on Strange Fire. Have you heard about that? Strangefire.com. And you know how John is. He's just going to hit it head on and, bah, and, and you know, uh, go after it. And, and when I look at some of what they're doing to plan on all of that, uh, they're going after, and I'm sure it'll bring it close to home, but most of the things that are advertised are the big things outside of our circles. In other words, when I preach here on the Holy Spirit for the next 13 weeks or so, uh, my concern is a little different than the extreme, strange, bizarre phenomenon that's taking place in the name of Christ down the road. Stuff like, you know, you would get, you know, in, in, in Benny Hinn's building next door, you know. That's, I don't fear that most of you are going to start going there instead of here. Uh, I, I, I sense that that's not the problem. So I'm not going to preach so much toward that. You can go to the conference and get all of that or read the book that they're going to put out. And there's a lot of abuse going on in some major ways outside of, of what I think we're infected with. What I want to deal with are, are books like Francis Chan's book, for instance, Forgotten God. I don't know if any of you have read that. I mean, here's a book by an evangelical conservative publisher from a guy that graduated from master's college, and he's putting out a book or a master's seminary, and, and it's, it's filled with things that I think will lead you to dangerous practices because of the, of the focus of the book and the emphasis of the book. So what I'm concerned about in this study in particular, though we'll deal, I suppose, with the borders of, of, of orthodoxy, I want to talk about the way sometimes our ideas within evangelical circles today, particularly younger evangelical circles, have led us into some, some scary things. I mean, this is out of the first couple chapters of his book. You know, we don't experience his presence enough. Okay, think about that. So even that, in, in my understanding of as a Christian sitting in the pew saying, well, here's an evangelical from a conservative circle telling me I need some kind of experience that I'm not having because he's the forgotten God, the forgotten person of the, of the Trinity. And then he says the evidence of that is going to be supernatural. Well, you know, that sounds like the mild, you know, Pentecostalism of, of years past. And he says, the problem is so bad, we're being chided into this new thinking because the light of the American church is flickering and nearly extinguished, he said. Therefore, we need to surrender to the Holy Spirit. Now, those, may, those may, lines may sell books, 
But the question is, what does it do to people in our churches, churches like ours, that say, oh, I've forgotten the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, the, the light of the church in evangelicalism is flickering and about to be extinguished. I need to surrender to the Holy Spirit. I need to experience his presence. I need to have the evidence of, of the supernatural presence of God. Those are all his phrases. And, and those are the books that you buy and read. And all I'm saying is what we want to do in the next 13 weeks is be careful even with the kind of of colored ideas, if you will, the the graying ideas within evangelicalism about the Spirit that I think is infecting uh, churches like ours right here in our place. And so we've got to be careful. And dangerous may be a pejorative word or a big word, but I do think a lot of the things that you'll come out of a lot of evangelical books being written that always want to be novel, by the way. And I've dealt with publishers through the years, and I know everybody wants to publish a book that's novel and new. You know, they're like the Athenians in Acts 17. I always want to talk about something new. If I've heard it before, I don't want to hear it. There's a problem with that. Evangelical publishers get to a place where there's nothing you can publish anymore that's biblical because we've already done it. So we need something that's revolutionary, something that's going to change you in terms of your new thoughts about the old ideas. And all I'm saying, that's a dangerous place, and it's where Christian publishing is today, unfortunately. And it's, I think, a fodder and and a breeding ground for a lot of dangerous practices uh, as it relates to the Holy Spirit. And, And then... I think there's a lot of misunderstanding regarding the Holy Spirit's role, which, by the way, to speak of Chan's book, and I, I'm not trying to beat up on him or that book, but I know a lot of you have read it, or many of you have. I hear it talked up a lot. I mean, it was the number one bestseller. Uh, it is the number one bestseller on Amazon in the Christian study of the Spirit, and the breakdown of theology. It's, it sells better than any other book out there, uh, beating every book, you know, by whatever. There's lots of them, uh, Tory and, uh, and Grant, Billy Graham and John MacArthur and all those guys. Chan's outsells that uh, book by far. But what's my point? His thing is that we have forgotten this person of the Trinity. He is the forgotten God. And, and, and here's how it's put in the beginning of the book. We have tragically neglected the Holy Spirit. And my contention, as you'll see weave throughout this semester, is that that is a, is a perspective that I believe is misguided because we don't understand the roles of the Holy Spirit the way we ought to. Now, if you've already... Put, been put back on your heels because, you know, you're a Forgotten God fan. Here's, uh, you know, and all I'm saying is I know that I'm going to risk right now in this letter C, I know I'm going to risk misunderstanding. I don't, I don't mean to say that. I'm going to give you a place to, to beat me up. Let's put it that way. <laughs> because I'm going to give you an illustration. And I'm going to give you an illustration because I think it's helpful. But if you are already prejudiced against where I'm going in this semester, I think what you can do is use this to beat me up. But here's what I need to say about the illustration. I understand every illustration breaks down at some point. You do understand that. Every illustration that Jesus ever told, every parable that Jesus ever told, ever told if you push it too far, you will create error. You have to give the parable teller the benefit of the doubt. Do you follow me on this? To where you say, I see how that helps a misunderstanding or illustrates a point. And in this case, I want to illustrate the roles of the Trinity, i.e. the Holy Spirit in our study. And if that's the case, think this through now. If that's the case, I'm willing to, to put this out there and have a reference back to it week after week as is necessary because I think it will help us. But, you know, I can see where it could be used in a, in a pejorative sense against, you know, Mike's view, because it'll seem demeaning. It can, I suppose. All right, with all of that, what's he going to, what is this illustration? This is crazy. Not that bad. All right, what I want to do, and, and get this in your mind, I want to give you a, what I'll call a schoolyard illustration. And I thought about how to do this and again, because every illustration breaks down, I'll, let's just say you are in a small town in, 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 the, in a rural area, and you go to a school that's small. There's only three adults in this school. You are taught, I hope, and trained well as a kid to respect the authority of these three. As a matter of fact, you're told by your parents, and rightly so, that all three of these adults that work at this school, all three of these adults are to be respected as the authority they are all co-equal in authority. You see the Trinitarian underlying you know, glue to this illustration. You have in this schoolyard three employees. Now, here's the thing. They all have different roles. And in this school, you are to go and you're going to function under the authority of these three persons that work there. And your parents are going to hold you accountable for how you interact with them. The first one is the principal. The principal. And in this case, my illustration, that's the father. 
He is co-equal with the Son. He has the exact authority as the Son. He has the exact authority of the, as the Spirit. He is equal in terms of status, but he is different in terms of role. This is like husband and wife. Equal dignity, equal worth, equal value, different roles. In the Godhead, there are different roles. The principal, what is he? Well, he's the administrator. He's the planner. He gives ultimate oversight. Okay? He has equal worth, equal status, equal uh, uh, authority. And you as a child in this little tiny school, you are to obey all of these adults equally. But that one sits in the, in the corner office. <laughs> you know, I guess it's the only office. And he there is the administrator, the planner. The over, he oversight. He's planning the calendar. He's figuring out what to do with, you know, this break or whatever. Got it? Great. The son is your teacher. You're in a class, and that teacher is the one you listen to. That's the teacher who leads your classroom. He instructs you. He directs you, gives you assignments. You answer to him. He lectures to you. He gives you instructions on how to understand this or understand that. He is your teacher. And the teacher will say, it's time to stand up. It's time to turn that in. It's time to turn your paper over. Don't use a pencil on this. Use a pen. Here's how we're going to understand this subject. Here's how you're going to work on that thing. Here's what you're going to do for homework tonight. There's your teacher, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit, let's call him the custodian. You can see where I'm opening myself up for criticism there. The custodian. Because if you're thinking like I am of the custodian I knew in elementary school, you know, ooh, the custodian. And remember, all three of these, equal authority, equal worth, equal dignity, co-equal in power, but the custodian is there to facilitate, to make sure the classroom is clean. If something is broken, he repairs it. If there's some threat on campus, a coyote is loose, he's there to protect, he's there to defend, he's there to fix, he's there to set up, he's there to clean up. He's there to take care of whatever needs to be taken care of, to lock up, to fix, to defend, to provide. If there's a projector needed, he gets it. If there are cables that are broken, he gets another one. If, there's, if, the, if the fuse goes out, he's going to go fix the electric. The custodian is there to make sure that you, as a student, listen to your teacher and nothing gets in the way of that. He is there to aid and facilitate. Now, like my kid, thinking of my youngest in elementary school, comes home from school, the talk every single day is about the teacher. Matter of fact, the principal said something to her the other day, and she came home raving about the fact that the principal talked to her. What a great thing. Wow, the principal talked to me. Why is that a big deal? Well, he's the principal. He sits in his office and plans and knows my name. That's great. But every day I listen to my teacher. Now, here's the thing. I remember last year, one time she forgot her math book or whatever, and I took her back. It was on a Monday, the day I'm off, and I pick her up from school. I brought her home. She said, I forgot my math book. I said, ugh. So we went back to the school, and I don't know. The teachers just shut down, lock up quick, and leave. So I, I was locked out. But she says, I know the custodian, and she gave the name. I don't even remember the name, and, and I know if I can find him, he'll, he'll get me. And sure enough, he did. Nicest guy. There's a guy, we don't ever talk, I can't even remember his name. Was he not important? Now back to the schoolhouse illustration. You are there, you know all three of these because there's only three employees at the school. To say he's the forgotten employee, all I'm saying is if you want to give him the kind of focus that you give your teacher, you've misunderstood the roles. If you even in terms of the father who wants to glorify the son, John 17, if you want to have that kind... You've even missed the the, the role of the Father. John 16, the Spirit's going to come and he will glorify me, Jesus says. See, the principal wants my daughter to listen to her teacher. The custodian wants my daughter to listen to the teacher. He wants to facilitate and fix any problem that there is. He wants to make sure the relationship between student and teacher is intact and that we get what we need to out of that. That's the whole point of this going to school thing. Jesus will be, think about this now, on the throne in the new Jerusalem for eternity. He will be God incarnate, God with us, his name on banners in the new Jerusalem. He will be the focal point to the glory of God the Father. Just like the principal leaning back in his chair saying, I'm so glad, look at this school, every student listening to their teacher. He sits back and says, success in this school. And the custodian still, for all eternity, goes about making sure the son is glorified. 
That perspective, if you can keep that perspective, and we'll establish it, we've given you no scripture, this is just an opening salvo on trying to tune up and correct and calibrate our thinking about the Holy Spirit. That is what we'll try to fill in in terms of roles. And I think in the misunderstandings within the, the walls of evangelical churches, that is, is a big part of the problem. And we need to make sure we keep that in view. We'll try to establish it and prove it and all the rest. And that will help us, I believe, a great deal as we move forward in our series. Mike said the Holy Spirit's just a janitor. That's what he said. <laughs> Whatever. You know, if that's, what you want, if that's what you got out of that, fine. But I think for some of you, who I, I believe will resonate with what we're going to see throughout this study in the scriptures, you'll see that that, I think, is at least the best I can do within my skill set, giving you... Uh, some help. Because if you think they're tri- the triune God, the co-equal persons of the Godhead, they all need to be focused on the same. You've missed the point of the roles of the Holy Spirit. That, that, that's the moral of the story. Okay, number three. Tonight, let's continue to talk about the nature of the Holy Spirit. Talk about the Jehovah Witnesses. Pick up a New World translation, and they're in force in South Orange County right now, are they not? What is going on? Convention is in town. I don't know. But they do have a convention in Long Beach every year, do they not? Anyway, pick up a New World Translation. That's the translation for the JWs. And I just use them as an example. There are plenty of cults that believe the same thing. The Holy Spirit is not a person. That's a stupid thing to say if you're a, whole, if you're a Jehovah Witness. We know he's not a person. He is an impersonal force. He is like electricity. You can go to their site, jws.org or whatever it's, it is. Uh, you'll never find the word Holy Spirit capitalized, for instance, in the New World Translation. You have to understand that this whole idea of the Trinity was man's creation. That's what they're always pushing at your door. And none of this is biblical. And this is Constantine's problem. And, and, and he injected, it sounds like Dan Brown and, and the Da Vinci Code. But the point is, you have a misunderstanding of God. Your God doesn't even make sense. Three in one and all that, that's nonsense. We need to know there's one God. Jesus is not God. He's less than God. He's Michael the archangel, you know, Lucifer's brother, all that. You can get into all that with a lot of the cult groups. But what's the point about the spirit? The spirit is some animation or emanation. He's some kind of ray coming out of God. He is the force. And you want the force to help you. Oh, and they'll admit he's called the helper, right, in the upper room discourse in John 14 through 16. But he's not a person. Now, this is important. You cannot really interface with the spirit, you're jw small s or the holy spirit capital s if you're an evangelical christian unless you know who he is if it's an it then we need to think differently about it. so we need to spend some time on this establishing the fact that the holy spirit is a person let's talk about personhood bottom of the page a little chart there uh and you've been through this i'm sure in other studies with me if we're going to talk about personhood we're talking about intellect reason logic that's category one There are things that your dog or your cat does where the synapse in their little brain fire and you're all impressed with their instinctual reactions and that's great and you love your pet, I loved mine. I guess I should get one and I could say that in the present tense, but it's great. But they don't sit around with logic, reason, and intellect and and on the the order of what we're talking about that makes you a human being. That's that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the ability to, to reason. Dolphins, I know they're so much smarter than us. They've yet to build a hospital for other dolphins when they get, when they get sick. You see what I'm saying? We, we, have, we don't have that abstract reason, logic, self-reflexive, intellectual. Uh, but according to Isaiah 11:2, and I, I could go on with a lot of other passages, but for the sake of time, I'm giving you one central passage for each of these. And I put it on the screen. There's a lot of passages we're going to have to look at tonight, so most of them are on the screen tonight. And the Spirit of the Lord, this is Isaiah 11:2, shall rest upon him. Now look at the... Look at the um, parallelism, a lot of Hebrew in the, you notice you go from prose to poetry, even in the prophets, you've got a lot of Hebrew parallelism where you get this rhyming that's not with your sound, but it's rhyming with your mind. And here's the, the parallel way to describe the spirit of God. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon you. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, wisdom, understanding, counsel, knowledge. I don't say that about electricity. When you say the force be with you, you know, or whatever, I, I don't think of it in terms of, of, of wisdom. You know, Yoda has the wisdom. I'm sorry. I, I'm, not a, I'm, not a, I'm not a Star Wars fan, but I'm just saying. 
I know we have some among us and on staff. But what's the point? The human being, this is a bad illustration, and it's off the cuff, I shouldn't be doing this. Is he, I don't know what he is. The Jedi, the, the, the wrinkled little guy, puppet, he has the intellect, the reason, the, the logic, and can dispense the wisdom, the force. I don't know what George Lucas was thinking that is, but it's, it's not this. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, knowledge. You'll correct me, I'm sure, on that. Emotions, feeling, passion, the sentient part of who I am, that makes me human. My dog can, can, can I get, feel, you know, bad or whatever. But the issue of my emotions, to be melancholy, to be reflexive in my heart in terms of my feelings, to have passion, uh, you know, the, the artistic passion of a, of a person is, you don't find that in the animal kingdom. This is, this is something that makes us uniquely human. Things like when someone does something that does not cause physical pain, but emotional pain, the Bible says things like this. Isaiah says it as well, uses the same uh, phrase in English. It's different in Hebrew, of course, but it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, the, is it Isaiah 40? You have rebelled and grieved God's spirit. The idea is you've done something wrong, didn't physically hurt you, but there's an emotional response. Like Genesis 6 talks about, they sinned, they continually sinned. God was grieved in his heart. Well, the Spirit of God is described as grieving. And of course, will, volition, purpose, discerning and making decisions about what I'm going to do. I'm going to build a hospital. I'm going to, you know, whatever, start a paper route. Whatever I'm, whatever I'm going to do, the, the volitional decisions to do that. Not reactive, not, not re- instinctive. 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 11. Look at this statement. And these... Uh, are empowered by one, all the giftedness there, that's the passage on the gifts, remember, are, are empowered by one and the same spirit. And I'll stop right there. If it's just that, I could say maybe this, maybe the JWs are right. Maybe it is a force. Maybe it's some kind of, you know, electricity or something. And it's some emanating, uh, you know, of power of God who apportions, there's a big word, each one individually as he wills. Electricity doesn't decide which outlet to send electricity to, right? If there's, you know, if there's a path of resist, of least resistance, off it goes. And, and it conducts, see what I'm saying? The person apportions and decides and wills and chooses and does what he wants to do. That's the picture of personhood. Intellect, emotion, and will. The Holy Spirit uh, has them all. These are sample passages. We could look at others. That's just to get started here. He takes personal action. That's the fill in there. He takes personal action. The Holy Spirit in the Bible takes personal action. I'll just give you 10 quick ones. They all come from less than 10 passages, but a lot of them from John 16. Look at this passage up on the screen. You jot it down if you would. John 16:13. This will be the first one. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now let's just start with that one. When he comes, he will guide you. There is something that I suppose you could say a force might do. I don't know, a, a waterfall is a force, and it might guide, my, guide my, my head underwater. But it's not really guiding. I wouldn't use that word. Uh, but it helps me, I'm going to see more in this passage, to think that's something a person does, to guide. Seems to be volition involved in that, discernment involved in that. It says, and he won't speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, electricity doesn't hear, the force doesn't hear. That's the second one. He hears. Uh, And then the next line, uh, he'll speak. That is Christ's description about the one the Father would send. He is going to guide. He hears. He speaks. And then what's the next line? Declare, which sounds like speak, but it's more the idea in the language of disclosing and revealing. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you. That seems like something you'd say of a person, not a force. He hears. That's something I say of a person, not a force. He speaks. That's certainly something I would say of a person, not a force. He declares. That's something I would say of a person, not a force. Earlier in the passage, verse number 8, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's number 5. He convicts. Convicts. That may seem like a very uncomplicated thing, feeling convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment, but notice he's convicting not of everything, but selectively and discerningly convicting. That's something a person does. I'm going to convict about this. I'm going to convict about that. I'm going to convict about that. It's like going into a room saying, I'm going to make that person feel bad about this thing, and I'm going to make them feel bad about that thing, and I'm going to make them feel bad about that thing, but not that, not that, and not that. That's something a person does, not a force. Acts 8, 39 and 40. 
When they came up out of the water, now this is an interesting and I understand miraculous thing that happens here in the apostolic age, one account of this and the only one in the scripture. It says he came out of the water and and the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. Remember, Philip had just shared the gospel there. And this is with the Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch. The eunuch saw him no more. This is bizarre. He disappeared. And he went on his way rejoicing. The, the eunuch did. But Philip found himself at Astos. And, and as he passed through there, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The Spirit of the Lord carried him away and put him somewhere else. Took him from, you know, the, this, this caravan, this entourage of Candace and, and, and the Ethiopian eunuch, and takes him to a new place in a city where he's supposed to preach next. Miraculous, I get that. Exception, I understand that. But that's not something a force does. Does not carry you. I suppose a tornado could, but it would, you know, it would certainly not be a specific geographical, I'm going to move you from here to here. He's transporting Philip in this passage to a strategic place. That's going to take something besides a force. Likewise, the Spirit helps us. This is Romans 8.26. In our weakness, He helps us. That's one of the nicknames, of course. Parakletos, we'll look at that in our series. The helping of the Spirit. That seems like a word that would describe a personal action, someone acting. Keep reading in the text. We do not know how to pray as we ought, so the Spirit Himself, there's the next one, intercedes for us. You know what that means? Praise. He's praying the right things often when we're praying the wrong things. That's the idea of intercession because we don't know how to pray. And he's doing it in the context of that passage. The world's groaning, we're groaning, and he's groaning. What does that mean? The world can't wait for redemption. We can't wait for redemption. He can't wait for redemption. And he knows the right kind of prayers to be praying on our behalf. He's groaning in his prayers for us. So that is a personal action. How about this? Acts 15, 28. This is a a good passage because it parallels the thing going on in the apostles' mind. And it's, for it had seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So think about that. That verb now applies to them. It seemed good to us. Let's just read it that way. To lay on them, this is the, the Jerusalem council, no greater burden than these requirements. So we decided that this makes sense. And so we made this decision. It seemed good to us to give you only these restrictions. But it starts this way. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. We know what it's like to make a decision about what, to, what should it be. What, how should I tell the kids what they should do tonight or what they shouldn't do? Ah, okay, let's do this. It seemed good to my wife and it seemed good to me to only put these restrictions on my kids tonight. That is a personal action. The Holy Spirit, is, that doesn't describe a force. He seems. I don't know, that's how I put it. That's a weird word, but I'm just being literal to the text here. He's impressed and persuaded to decide. I'm sorry, that's how I wanted to say that. He, the spirit was, as the apostles, were impressed that this was the right thing, persuaded that this was the right thing, and decided this particular thing. The spirit's deciding. There's the volitional aspect, by the way, of personhood. Last one, 1 Corinthians 2.13. And we impart this, Paul says to the Corinthians, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. The spirit teaches. Waterfalls don't teach. The electricity in your in your in your in your the, the electrical lines of your house they don't teach. And of course, we know the kinds of things the apostle Paul was talking about as an apostle getting these these this teaching from the spirit that he teaches to us to those that are spiritually appraised uh, and discern discerning. And the point is that's not nonsensical. That's that takes a lot. He's a, he's a teacher. The spirit taught and taught the apostles, and even, we'll see in our study, teaches still. So that's personal action. Can you see that? When, I don't know. There's 10 quick things for the JW at your door, I, I suppose. The, the, does this sound like a force to you? It doesn't to me. He's described, letter C, as a person. He's described as a person. Um, and this will be tricky, as we'll see in a second, because if you do have the, the sharp cultist, he'll, he'll call you on this, but we'll fix that problem. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. Here's a description of things you would say about a person. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has, underline this word now, outraged the Spirit of grace? He's outraged. Outraged. The Spirit of God can be outraged, angered. I can't see a force, wind, waterfall, electricity, being outraged. And again, that's where the cultist starts. The spirit is a force. We got to say that because we don't want to believe in the Trinity. So the force 
Uh, obviously makes sense because the word spirit, did you not know, means wind, and that's all it means. And so it's just like the, the, the out, you know, pouring of God's power. That's all this is. Well, if that's the case, I can't see outrage in the wind of grace. Doesn't make any sense. Acts 5, 3. And Peter said to Ananias, why has the Holy, I'm sorry, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? You remember Ananias and Sapphira here, lying to the Holy Spirit. I can't see lying to a force. That doesn't make a lot of sense. He is described as a person. I can lie to a person, a person that I know can be outraged at me. I get that, not a force. Matthew 12, 31, therefore I tell you, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Uh, now, again, we can deal with that. I think we dealt with this in Christology, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But the point here is it's blasphemy against the Spirit. He can be blasphemed. And because of that, it's an offense to the triune God. And the blasphemy, that word, is to, to belittle, to, to act as though it's profane. Matter of fact, it is blasphemy to say that the person of the Holy Spirit is a force. It's blasphemy. You can blaspheme a person. You can't blaspheme a force. Number four, while Peter was pondering the vision, now think about this, the Spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. This is with Cornelius and the whole thing. He's being called to go share the gospel with an Italian, which was new for this Jewish boy. Three men are looking for you. Rise, go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men. Spirit said it. He did it. He can be obeyed. Forces, I suppose you could say, well, you know, I was going downstream with the flowing of the river. I was obeying the, well, not this way. It doesn't say something in this context and you respond with obedience. This is a description of a person, a person that can be outraged, a person that can be lied to, a person that can be blasphemed and a person that can be obeyed. These are aspects of personhood. Oh, I got another one. Do I not? No? Oh, I got one more. Yeah, number five. John 16, 13. Okay, here's where the, where the person who says it's a force is going get, to get you tripped up. John 16, 13 through 14. Let me give you the point first. He is a he. He is described as a he. Now, when you're reading the New World Translation or you're talking to anybody else that believes the Holy Spirit is not a person because they're what they used to call Unitarians, like the Wesleys would call the, uh, the Muslims, because you know, they believe one God, there is no triunity in God, um, you always have to take references to the Spirit and make them an it. Here's the problem with the language. The language is, is highly inflected in, in, in the Bible, particularly the Greek New Testament, and you can add the he, she, or it to the verb like you can in other languages, and that's usually where the pronouns are tucked. In other words, uh, he threw the ball is not he threw the ball, it's he threw is one word, the ball, and it's based on the endings of the verb. Problem is, he, she, and it is not distinguished in the verb. Do you follow that? We don't have gender attached to the verbs. We have gender attached to the nouns. And the JW at your door is going to say this. I know the spirit's a force because the word ruach and the word pneuma are both neuter nouns. They don't have feminine gender and they don't have masculine gender. And when they're at your door telling you that there is no trinity and the spirit is not a person, it's just the emanation of God's power, it's just a force, it's just an influence... You're going to stand back and go, oh, I, I didn't know that spirit, because I'm reading my Bible and it says he. Well, you know, in the language, the New World Translation doesn't do this because it's done by good Greek scholars and they know that you can translate he threw the ball, you could translate it, it threw the ball. Because you have to tell by context or the accompanying noun. See, the subject noun. So, in a verse like this, here's an example. If you're going to be grammatically correct, you should use every pronoun in the neuter if you're going to talk about spirit, because spirit is a neuter noun. Like in Spanish, I don't know, I'm not a Spanish guy, but they have feminine and masculine nouns, right? Please help me, because I'm out on a limb. I shouldn't have started this. It, are there neuter nouns in Spanish? Oh, man. You're in, you're in America, Mike. In Greek, we got neuter, feminine, masculine. Spirit is neuter. If that's the case, the pronouns, if you're going to keep the rules of grammar, should be neuter. Why? Because the word spirit is based on the idea of wind, and wind is neuter, both in ruach and pneuma. Here's some passages. Here's an example I'm going to give you where there is in Scripture the writers of the Bible, in this case the words of Christ, breaking the grammatical rules, where you have a neuter noun being accompanied in the context with masculine pronouns. Are you following this now? 
masculine pronouns. If you have that, you either have a really bad speaker who, you know, who should flunk out elementary Greek, or you've got someone making a point. Though I know we talk about pneuma is a neuter, we're really talking about a he. Now, because the rest of the Bible makes clear, and passages like this make clear that the spirit is a he and not an it, we have throughout the New Testament, at least good translations, you have spirit. Whenever that is used as a noun, you see the pronouns around it always are he. But they're going to call you on that and say, well, you don't have to do that in the language. The, the verb itself contains he, she, or it just by its ending, and so it could be an it. Okay, this, this puts it to rest. John 16, 13 through 14. When he, okay, and in the ESV, unfortunately, they didn't even supply this. Uh, I'll show you in a minute. I should have put a, well, never mind, thinking out loud, shouldn't do that. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are, that are to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says, for he will take what is mine and declare to you. Now, do you get the idea in this, in this context that, that the spirit is a he? Yeah, I get that. Only three times there, though, we have in the Greek language uh, a pronoun. And when the pronouns show up, I put them in yellow here, and I underlined them, and there's no way to see them as neuter or feminine. They are there as masculine. These are the words of Christ. I know you can get into the whole Aramaic thing, and I think I addressed this in the Christology thing, but I believe that Jesus spoke Greek. When he spoke Aramaic, they recorded it as Aramaic, and he did that in a few instances. Did he know Aramaic? Absolutely. Don't get me started on that discussion. But here's the point. Certainly, even if you don't believe he spoke uh, Greek, Paul, or, I'm sorry, John's writing this in Greek, and he's making very, very clear Jesus is clear that the spirit is a he. Let me put it this way. A chart may help, though I don't have it on your worksheet. I'm going to list on the left side of this screen, justify it left, if the he pronoun is masculine. As a demonstrative pronoun in this, in this case, uh, if it's in the masculine. I'll put over here on the right side if it's part of the verb and can be he, she, or it. Okay? Here's how the text reads. I'm trying to do it in English so you can see it here. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, there is no way to make that a neuter. No possible way. It's a masculine. He will guide you into all truth. Guide is the verb, and the attachment to the verb is third person, singular. Could be he, she, or it. For he will not speak. Negation, to speak, lelao, it is a third person, uh, singular. Could be he, she, or it. His own authority, will not speak on his own authority, that's masculine. There's a pronoun. It's in the masculine. There's no making that anything but a masculine. But whenever he hears, that's the verb to hear, a kuo, with a third person ending, singular, third person singular, it could be he, she, or it. He will speak. He, she, or it. He will declare to you the things that are to come. Declare with the ending that shows me that it's a third person singular. It could be he, she, or it. He will glorify me. Pronoun. Absolutely masculine, no debate, separate, broken out from the verbs. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. He, she, or it. You follow me on this? The reason I know all the ones in blue should be he is because the context has, as though I need this passage to prove it to me, the rest of the Bible should prove it to me that it's a he and not an it. I've got masculine pronouns here. You could say, I suppose, from everything we've said so far, it's acting like a person. It, I mean, excuse me for that, but it's acting like a person, it's, it's responding like a person, it's feeling like a person, it's thinking like a person, it's deciding like a person, it's a person. You could say, well, maybe it's a she. Well, all I'm telling you is, I, I know it's a person, it's not an it. In a passage like this, I go even further and say, I know it's not an it, and I know it's not a she. It is a he. He is a he. That's the point of this fifth point. Did you follow that? Okay. All I'm telling you, don't, be, don't get stumped when the, when the Unitarian comes to your door whether it's a Muslim, they're not going door to door yet, not to share the gospel, or the Jehovah Witness or whoever it might be, don't fall to this thing that you don't understand the Greek language, therefore these are all it's. It's not it, he. Translations are correct. Your translation is correct. Their translation is wrong. Was that helpful to anybody? I hope so. Which, by the way, if you open up a New World Translation, which I pulled down and I looked at because I thought, what do they do with this passage? They do say he, and they talk around it. And I read a commentary on, from the JWs at one time that, uh, and I don't remember where, I, where it was, that said the reason we translate this he is because it is just a personification like of wisdom in Proverbs. You know how wisdom is personified as, you know, uh, she was with me when I laid the foundation. That's what's happening here based on the word parakletos or the word helper. And the only reason that the translators translated he is because clearly there are three references to a he, a masculine pronoun, but it's only because it's personified as a helper, even though it's really a force. I don't think so. 
I think there's way too much to prove in the Scripture this is a person. And I think that's a real weak excuse for Jesus talking about the coming of the Spirit in terms of he. All right. He's also God. He's not just a he and a person, but he's, he's God. Letter A, ascribed divine attributes. In the Scripture, he is ascribed divine attributes. The attributes that we would expect to see in the Father are now referenced in the Bible and attributed to the Spirit. For instance, Isaiah 40, verse 13. And and I guess I should have printed more context here, but who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counselor? Can you bring someone that can inform of us something? Can you measure the Spirit? This is much like the end of the book of of Job, where there's like, who who can add anything to God's wisdom? Who has, been, who has ever been God's counselor? Isaiah said the same thing. Job says the same thing about the Father. Here it's said of the Spirit. He's measureless, immeasurable in terms of context, his knowledge, because no one can come and inform him of anything because he knows everything. We call that in theology omniscience. The Spirit of God directly in this text is one who is seen as having no limits to his knowledge. You cannot come and counsel him. He is the spirit of counsel, as we saw, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of understanding. And you can't teach him anything because he knows everything. Omniscient. Only God is omniscient. Omnipresent. Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? That whole passage, if I go to Sheol, you're there. If I go to the heights of heaven, you're there. The context here is about the fact that you can't go anywhere. This is a rhetorical question, and the answer is nowhere. Therefore, you can't get away from the knowledge, the perception of this person, the Spirit, just like you can't get away from the perception and knowledge of God. Same with Christ. I saw you when you sat under the tree. Remember that passage there in John? Jesus perceives everywhere. God perceives everywhere. The Holy Spirit perceives everywhere. I suppose it's another way of talking about omniscience, but we like to think of it through a different matrix, and that is the omnipresence of God. He is present everywhere. Omnipresence, that's an attribute of God, not of angels, not of demons, not of people. Hebrews 9.14. How much more will the blood of Christ, through who through the, the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God? Now, I suppose you could talk about the fact that we have eternal life, and when you die, you will live eternally. But the idea in this context, whenever we attach it to the Spirit, it seems to make much more contextual sense to talk about the fact that this is someone who is not bound by time. Eternal, not just from now onward, but much like Christ, who was pre-existing his incarnation. Here, the Spirit is described as eternal. We call that eternal, and it means that he had no beginning or end. By itself, I could see where you could attack that as maybe that's not the case. Maybe it's just talking about he never has an end, but maybe he had a beginning. But as a composite of all these other ones, I don't think it can happen. Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void. Second verse of the Bible. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. The picture here is the creative force of of God. I, I shouldn't use that word after all that talk of the Jehovah Witnesses and force. The creative work of God done through the agency, not only of Christ, Colossians tells us that all things were made through him. As John says, all things that exist didn't come into existence without Christ. They also didn't come into existence without the Spirit. The Spirit was there as the creative act. Job 33, the Spirit of God made me, Job says. The idea of the creator God. That's what Jesus kept proving, by the way, through his creative miracles, that he was the creator. It's what the Spirit did through the apostles in the New Testament in the book of Acts. He gave them this ability to show the creative power of the Spirit. He's omniscient, omnipresent, eternal creator. There's a sampling of divine attributes that are ascribed to the Spirit. He's engaging in divine actions. Could have gone on with the attributes list, but some of these, I think, fit better into this category. These are the things that God does. Hebrews 2, 4. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. We could talk about the will of the Spirit there, but now we're talking about the fact that God is testifying about the truth of his message. It says here, describing them as signs, wonders, and miracles, as gifts of the Spirit. Think about that. The Spirit of God is the one then producing miraculous signs. That is an act of God. He worked miracles. That's engaging in divine actions. Again, spoken of in personal terms. We could speak of personhood in this, but we're talking about divinity in this particular section. He, uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 35. And the angel answered her, Mary, that is, the angel answered Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child... 
to be born will be called holy, the son of God, the son of God. Okay, well, why don't we just have Joseph take care of this problem? No, no, no. This is the son of God, a special creative act of God. We could say creator here, but let's talk about this. To be specific, he was the agency of the virgin birth. That's an act of God. He's a child of God, a son of God. That's the idea, at least as it's described here, which really points to Daniel chapter 7, and that is the incarnate authority, the resonant authority of divinity in a person, and it's done by the work of the Holy Spirit. Talk about God sending his son, but here it's ascribed to the work of the Holy Spirit. Second Peter 1.21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men, wasn't produced by man, it was produced by someone else. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so God was going to speak. The Holy Spirit then was going to make sure that those authors put the words down that were the words of God. Or to put it in terms of Revelation chapter 2 and 3, in the seven postcards to the seven churches in Asia Minor, it's repeated seven times in those two chapters. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We're reading it. That's the words of God. And it's ascribed to the Spirit. Put it this way. Number three, the Spirit is the divine cause of Scripture. These are the words of God as it's put in Second Timothy. They are God-breathed words. That God-breathed words, theopanoustos, that idea of being God-breathed in this text says it's the Spirit who carries people along to inscribe those words under the supervision of the Spirit of God. It's the words of God. But it's really the Spirit speaking in that case, specifically in Revelation 2 and 3, to the seven churches. That's not a force. That's not wind. That's not waterfall. It's not electricity. This is a person, and it's not just any person. It's the divine person who's speaking divine words, who's the agent of the virgin birth, working miracles in the apostolic ministry. Now, with all that talk about God, he's God, divine attributes, divine actions, we need to be clear about what he's not. We don't want to be modalists here modalists believe that God just wears a different hat. The Upper Room Discourse is a great passage to go to for the modalists or the oneness Pentecostals. You've heard of them. They're also a form of Unitarians. They believe there's one God, but God just plays three different roles. Sometimes God is in the corner office as the principal, and then when the teacher's needed, he puts on the teacher's hat, comes into the classroom, writes on the whiteboard, and then if there's something broken, he puts on his custodial hat, and he goes and he does that. That's what people believe because they don't want to, many people believe because they don't want to grapple with the mystery of the triune God, and therefore they're, they're modalists. Well, the scripture distinguishes these. I will ask the Father, Jesus speaking here, John 14, these are red letter words. Jesus says, I, I will ask the Father. Now, if you are requesting and asking, there's differentiation between the two of you, and he will give you another, Greek word, alos, another of the same kind. So like, like, a lot like the word new. In Greek, we have two forms of new. You say you got a new car. Well, is it brand new or is it just new to you? Same thing with the word other. We can use the word other that means other like a different kind, or we could say other, another of the same kind. This is the word another of the same kind, but he's still another. And he's going to come because I'm going to go to the Father. He'll be your parakletos, your helper. That's what's translated helper there, to be with you forever. Why? Because I'm leaving. And it's a good thing I am leaving, Jesus said, so then I can send the other. He's another, not the same, which leaves us where? It leaves us here with this weird problem that JWs don't like, that one is Pentecostals don't like, that, mu that Muslims don't like. We don't like your God because we don't understand it. You're telling me there's one God, but... Three persons claim divinity, and you are okay with that? Yeah, that's the problem of God being much more complex than I can jam into my experience in life. The mystery of God, that God is one, but exists in three persons eternally. And the way to say that is, the Father is not the Son. He is another. The Son is not the Spirit. He is another. The Spirit is not the Father. He is another. But the Spirit is God, the Father is God, and Jesus is God. That's the Trinitarian doctrine that was not developed by Constantine. It was not some Johnny-come-lately idea. I've done this work before with you and put up on the screens quotes that go back all the way to the early 2nd century showing that we have, and those are records that we, the, that we have, of the idea of the divinity of three in one. Can't get around it. If it doesn't compute in your mind, welcome to the club. But this is the God of the Bible a divine fellowship existing eternally. He's perfectly fine fellowshipping with himself. Three persons, one fellowship, a divine fellowship. He didn't need us. He didn't need angels. But out of the goodness 
of his heart and for his own glory, he creates angels and then us so that we can enjoy him forever as the Westminster Catechism and others have said. He is another. All right, this may drive it home a little further now that we've just at least established afresh the Trinitarian doctrine. Let's think about how he is in Scripture associated with the Father and the Son, with the Father, 1 Corinthians 6.11. I'll read it for you. And such were some of you, drunkards, homosexuals, thieves, all that. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now that we find common. I just picked one verse for this, but you can see it everywhere. When we speak of Jesus and we distinguish Jesus from the Father, sometimes we speak of the Father and the Spirit now relating to him in our grammar, in a genitive form, a connective form, a possessive form, a relational form. We have the Spirit being connected or associated with God, the Spirit of our God. We also have associations in the text with the Son, Acts sixteen seven. And when they'd come up, To Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to. I mean, I guess you could you could you could curiously you know ponder the meaning of this, but we assume we're talking here about the Holy Spirit, the only Spirit, the Pneuma we've been talking about throughout the Bible, the New Testament, with the word Pneuma, a ruach in in Hebrew, and you're telling me that we now associate that person of the Godhead with Christ? Seems to be what's happening here. Or how about with both of them at the same time? With both. Matthew 28, 19. Every time you go to a baptism service, you hear this. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the names of the Father and the Son. And the Oh, is that right? Is that how it's read? Correct me now if I ever get this wrong. The name, singular. There's the idea. The unified authority of principal teacher and custodian, if you will. Them together as the unified authority in three persons. The singular name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You start looking through the scriptures, you'll find these all over the place where you start grouping them together as three in the New Testament with clarity that we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Modalism, hard to make sense of that. Unitarianism, hard to make sense of that. Altogether, we're left with a composite picture of a triune God. E, he bears divine titles. This is the classic. We read part of the story. We didn't even turn to it, but we haven't turned to much of anything here tonight. But Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Okay, now think about that. He's just lying. He have any particular in mind except for the apostles and the people standing around. But it was an offense to the Holy Spirit because he claims Christ. And frankly, I would argue that he is a Christian. That's why he ends up being disciplined the way that he was. And why did you keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Not that you had to. You, well, he goes on and says it. Well, it remained unsold. It remained your own. You could have done whatever you want. But after it was sold, it was at your disposal. You could have done whatever. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but you've lied to God. There's a divine title. The parallel here is, who did you lie to? If I'm asking the question, verses 3 and 4, ask my kid, hey, who, who, what does this passage say? Who did Ananias lie to? Lied to the Holy Spirit. In this context, he bears the divine name, Theos, God. He gets that letter A, important for us to recognize. The Spirit is, is God. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. Now, there are a variety of gifts endowments of of Christ, expressions of Christ's grace in the church. But the same Spirit, that seems to be the connection throughout chapter 12 through 14, the Spirit's work in the church. There are a variety of services, but the same Lord, Kyrios, the one in charge. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God. Now, you could read this and say, well, you're talking about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Son's called the Lord a lot. I don't think that's the context here. God empowers them all and everyone. Well, we're talking about the God, the Spirit, God, the Lord, there's a second reference to, oops, second reference or appellation or title, divine title attributed to the Spirit. Now, if that all seems academic, and I suppose for some it is, I guess I would go back to reemphasize what I started with. And that is that you and I can never rightly interface with the Spirit, which is where we're going. We want to learn about what He's done, what His ministries are, what He's promised to do, but we really want to get down to how do I interface and make sure that I'm walking, as the Bible says, in step with the Spirit. The only way to really get on the right trajectory, to get on the right path, is to start with, what are we talking about? 
Is it a what? Is it an it? Is it a he? Are we talking about a different entity than God? Are we talking about, in essence, God, but a different person? These are important places to start. And I would encourage you to spend some time as you read through the New Testament or whatever you're doing this week in the Bible, maybe just reading along with us in our daily Bible reading. Keep an eye out for references to the Spirit. And as you do, be sure that you clean up and focus tightly on what we've learned tonight in terms of the person and deity of the Spirit. And give me, by the way, please give me a chance to uh, establish and prove my proposition that, that I don't think that the problem in the church is that we have not put the proper focus on the Spirit. Oh, I do think the problem is that we're not in step with the Spirit. I do think the problem is that we're not filled with the Spirit. I get the problem that we are lying to the Spirit and disobedient to the Spirit and grieving the Spirit. I'm willing to agree with all that, and that's why the church is anemic and weak in America today. But it's not that we haven't had enough rallying cries to put our focus on the Spirit, and and that will be part of my contention through this series. Let's pray together. God, thanks for this opening night. Actually getting done early, it's uh, helpful, I suppose. We get a chance to share with one another and interact a little bit more before we leave, especially those who have kids. We'll have a chance to spend a little extra time here together. Thank you, God, just for another year of being able to get into your word and to think through very carefully and logically and in an orderly fashion the things that your Bible says about yourself. And to think about the Holy Spirit, who is not rallying or pushing or trying to be the focus of our attention, but trying to facilitate so that we keep our focus on your Son, And God, even as we pray to you, we know that what brings glory to you is our obedience to the Son. And Holy Spirit, we're not afraid to speak directly to you. We're grateful for your work in our lives. And we know that you care about our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray that you be actively working within our own lives. As we study your word, the book that you wrote, as we spend time responding to the convictions that you bring to our heart. Spirit, we want to be clear about our willingness to obey what you want us to do in this life. But we know what you're going to do as we read twice tonight from John 16. You want us, as is your goal, to bring glory to the Son. So I pray as Christians we bear his name because he is our focus, he is our teacher, he is our shepherd. I pray that you would empower us just with education and work and prompting and spiritual health health to be able to be the kinds of Christians that, that cling closely to Christ in this world. We can't wait to have him seated on the throne, ruling and reigning on a new earth. I know there's a lot that has to happen and is going to happen until then, but what doesn't have any barriers to it is the fact that Christ could come tonight to pick us up, and then a lot of things will unfold, but we want to pray as we were taught for the Lord Jesus to come, for his return, for the coming of the kingdom. So, Father, we are so thankful for the opportunity again that we have to study your word. Make it a great semester of learning. Keep, uh, I pray, our hearts open to be taught by the principles and precepts, the tenor, the flavor, and direction of your word as we're trying to be really careful to discern and, and, and perceive correctly what you're teaching us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.